Welcome to Post Show Recap. It's Dr. Amanda here. Um, and uh, television is not over, but um, it might be for the time being. We're bringing you a little bit more of our uh, Writers Guild strike coverage here. Um, I'm very, very excited to have a fantastic guest joining us today to give us some of her perspective of what is going on with the Writers Guild strike and the other strikes that are impacting television and film right now. Um, it is my great pleasure to bring to the show today, Frankie Butler, who is joining us. Welcome, Frankie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, well, we're so glad that you're joining us. What we do on Post Show Recaps is we talk a lot about television and film. And, you know, there's a lot going on sort of outside of the world of the things that we usually like to talk about, which is, you know, analyzing shows and movies and getting into all of that fun conversation. But, you know, sometimes the real world uh, creeps in and spoils the fun. And there's some really important issues going on right now that we think it's uh, it's it's really important to bring this to the light of our listeners. So Frankie's joining us today. Um, and Frankie, I was looking at your IMDb. You have an extensive history in the industry, working as a script coordinator for General Hospital for 416 episodes. Yeah, that was uh, that's the thing about soaps. When you shoot over 200 episodes a year. <laughs> incredible um, two, two years on that job uh i did a lot uh, yeah a lot there um as well as a writer for sweet magnolias on netflix and the l world l word generation q on showtime so a really impressive and extensive career um can you just tell us a little bit about your history working in the industry how you got involved uh, a little bit of uh perspective from these various uh different jobs both on the script coordinator side and the writer side yeah sure um weirdly for me it kind of goes back to the uh last strike um because i had known that i wanted to work in television um but i didn't i grew up in fucking mobile alabama that's not a job people have mm. like what um and then the 2007 2008 writer strike happened and learning about the Writers Guild, I was like, wait, there's a, there's a fucking union. I, I can get health insurance and a pension writing things. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that like kind of once I like knew that and I started researching, like being a writer's assistant, being a script coordinator, all of those things, um, I sort of saw that there was a path in for me. Um, but of course, this was after I was most of the way through undergrad when internships were still unpaid and I couldn't actually afford to just like move out here to LA um, and right. just make a go out of it. So I ended up doing an MFA, um, which I call paying to make friends. Um, <laughs> I know I literally went to grad school so I could be an intern um, and I interned my butt off at various and assorted places and luckily right out of grad school got that script coordinator job on General Hospital where I worked for two years as you said over 400 episodes um, really the amount of respect I like I have for soap writing and for soap acting and for the entire like mechanism of soaps after having done that job like it's really they do not get the amount of respect that they deserve. Um, yeah, I mean I can't imagine like just the sheer effort and talent and work ethic it must take to put on a show every single day, write and and act and edit and everything every single day. Yeah, no, we shoot, we, I say this like I'm still there. No, General Hospital uh, would shoot when I was there six to nine episodes a week. Incredible. So like it was insane. But also I knew I didn't want to work in daytime forever. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, after that kind of, I reached out to all of my like assistant friends and was like, I would like to make the jump to prime time. And one of them had been up for a gig that she couldn't take um and she but she was like but have you met my friend Frankie um and so I ended up um like getting a job on a very short-lived NBC show called The Player uh also as a script coordinator I think we went we aired maybe eight episodes <laughs> um of what was supposed to be a 22 episode season uh -huh. um and just kind of was an assistant was a script coordinator and writer's assistant on various and assorted other primetime shows for a couple of years 
until I finally got staffed on Genius, which was Nat Geo's very first scripted show ever. And to have your very first TV writing job be a network's very first scripted show is a weird experience. Uh-huh. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit about what a script coordinator responsibilities are like before we move on to your writing, the writing stage of your career? Sure. Um, and I'd like to specify that script coordinating on daytime and in primetime are very, very different. When mm. I was a script coordinator on daytime, because of just the sheer effing volume that you're doing, it is mostly just kind of formatting the scripts and making sure that everything looks right and making sure that there are no like massive typos or glaring errors um, because continuity and all of the things that a primetime script coordinator does are a producer level job in daytime mm -hmm. because I joined General Hospital in season 51. Um, I, there, it was not possible <laughs> for me to like have 50 seasons of continuity uh, the way yeah. that uh, Did you have a history watching soaps as a fan or was this like a, a just a quick education for you, an immersive experience? I had watched like a little. There was a very short-lived NBC soap Passions in the mm. mid-aughts that mm -hmm. I think every teenager, <laughs> every millennial teenage girl was like a little obsessed with. Um, and Or maybe just me. Maybe I'm just describing <laughs> this to everyone. I'm um, aware of the phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but aside from that, all I had known of General Hospital specifically was that Luke sexually assaults Laura and then they got married later in the highest rated episode of daytime television ever. Um, and like went from that to um, like starting to work on the show and immediately getting very, very invested in it mm -hmm. <laughs> because soaps have this, there's a very specific structure to soap writing where it's you have to give the audience enough of a recap so that anyone who is just coming in or has missed the previous episode because job, life, work, whatever, can like get caught up. And then you have to move the plot forward a little bit, um, but like not too far because you need right. to be able to like catch someone up in the next episode. And it's really, really fascinating. But yeah, that's what I did um, on General Hospital. And then for primetime, a script coordinator's job is it is formatting, um, it, is con it is formatting, it is proofreading, it is continuity, and it is distribution. So you are the person whose job it is to basically make sure all of the scripts get to the network, get to um, the studio, get to mm -hmm. the actual production. Um, on my first script coordinating job, there was a lot of me calling production because we were like, writing and shooting at the same time, being like, I, I, I'm aware that we are shooting this in three days and you will have it first thing in the morning. Um, and then me staying up at, till two in the morning when I finally got the script to read the script and proofread the script and make sure everything was right and then sending it so production would have it by six in the yeah. morning. Um, so a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of writing duties and, and production duties, it's both. Yeah, it is. The script coordinator is like the the midpoint between mm -hmm. your, your writers and your production. You are the mm -hmm. person who's kind of everything is going through. Um, and it's it's a very, very difficult job. It is like you end up kind of taking your laptop with you everywhere because you just don't know when rewrites come in at all times and all of that stuff. So you're like, no, I'm I will totally go to the movies with you guys, but I might have to step out and go to the lobby and like just read this 60 pages really quick. It's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so then you're at National Geographic and that's so this is uh, this is your first writing job. Yeah, yeah that was my first staff writer job uh, mm -hmm. on the Einstein series of Genius. Which was like really, which was, you know, lovely. You get to kind of do this very like well-regarded biopic of, you know, one of the greatest scientific minds of ever. And I was not a science person and I learned exactly enough theoretical physics to get me through that season of television. And then I immediately forgot all of it. <laughs> um, and so where did you go after that? I'm looking and I see the, the night shift. Yes, I had um, been in a writer's assistant slash script coordinator on the night shift. What we did on that show was basically my boss hired two people for both positions. And so we would decide how we wanted to split up duties. And he did it that way because um, 
Script coordinators can often be like very like isolated to your little office and you never get to talk to anyone. And part of working in television and moving up and getting all of these opportunities and also learning how to write television is being a writer's assistant and being in the room. Mm -hmm. And so, and he didn't want anyone to be siloed in that way. And Mm -hmm. so we did both jobs and we um, found a way to split it up. And I'm still friends with most of the people I, with the assist, most of the assistants and most of the writers from that show. Um, So yeah, I had been an assistant on the night shift before I got my job on Genius. And then when night shift came back for season four, rather than hiring me back Mm -hmm. as an assistant, my boss was like, well, you're a a staff writer now, so you're coming back as a staff writer. And I was like, yes, I am. Awesome. Amazing. And then I see, so then you're on the L Word Generation Q, um, which is a Showtime production. So you sort of are getting this experience with primetime, you have daytime, you have primetime, you have cable, you have all of these different components. What was that like? Um, it's been really, really interesting just getting to, yeah, I've done daytime, I've done daytime, primetime, daytime, primetime, premium cable, uh, basic cable and streaming at this point. So I've done all of the things um, and just getting to see how each one of those like works has been just so great in terms of different styles of writing, but also different styles of production. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always going to have a little bit of a excuse me, soft spot for network, just because in terms of teaching you how to be a showrunner in terms of teaching or teaching you how to eventually become a showrunner in terms of teaching you how the relationship between writing and production works. um, And in terms of like teaching you how to be a person who can like keep the industry going Mm -hmm. a network is still one of the best places for that um there are of course still cable shows that kind of work on that same schedule where they send writers to set and keep you through production um but it is a lot rarer to find that in pay cable and streaming than it is to find that in straight network yeah, I'm glad you bring this up. We had interviewed uh, about, uh, I guess, a, a month and a half ago now, another WGA member, Justin Shanes, um, to talk about the strike early on and changes in the industry that have sort of precipitated the situation that we're in right now with the negotiation stalemate. And one of the things that he pointed out was that like changes in the industry that are breaking up writer rooms and like and, and and sort of getting rid of these sort of steady gigs where you can really be involved in a show and learn all of those components that create like a pipeline to becoming a showrunner that some of the changes in the industry have undermined that structure that's really important for giving new writers like the sort of experiences that they would need to take on those uh, showrunner roles in the future, kind of developing that pipeline of talent and making sure that they have those training experiences. Um, Is that something that you've noticed in your 10 years now in the industry? It is definitely something I've noticed. It's something that like comes up when I'm in showrunner meetings for shows of just I am currently a co-executive producer, which is kind of, in terms of titles, the second highest, like, title you can have before you get to be an executive producer and presumably, like, the boss of things um, Mm -hmm. or a boss of things. Um, And the level of on-set experience I have is easily half what someone at my level with my years of experience would have had when I started. Um, And it's just because networks are cheap not networks but well studios networks yeah. everyone is cheap um and it's a tendency i'm seeing to be very penny wise and pound foolish of we do of well we don't want to pay to send writers to set we don't want to like pay to have a writer on through production okay well in five years you're not going to have anyone who knows how to do the fucking job like yeah sorry i keep on swearing a lot apologies oh, you're fine <laughs> but like it's one of those things where part of the job is training like this is one of those things where there is not like i i have a fucking mfa i went to film school and you, I will tell you right now, you cannot learn how to do this in school. There is no sort of quick training you can do. One of when we brought this up 
to the uh, AMPTP, which is, I believe, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, who are the yes. uh, people who we negotiate our agreement with. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that they offered was functionally an unpaid internship where writers can shadow showrunners and learn how to make a show. Let me state that again. An unpaid internship for a bunch of grown ass professionals who five, six, seven years ago would not have, would have been learning this in the course of their jobs because that is part of the fucking job. Right. Like, no. Because being on set is is work. There's things that writers do on the set that 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 is work, and like and getting that experience is also part of what like enables you to take on more responsibilities. Um, yeah, it's it. So like you said that you compared to when you started out, so ten years ago, mm-hmm. that the amount of um, on set experience that you have is like roughly half of what somebody at your level would have had. 10 years ago. That's like, I, it's, it's really stunning because I would imagine Frankie and I'm not like an insider, but I would imagine that you probably have more like given your history in networks and in soaps and like the different, I I was looking at your resume and thinking, Oh, I bet that you've had a lot of onset experiences compared to somebody who maybe like came in and has worked only in streaming or only done these like not had these steady gigs, which it also seems to be like, so I, it seems like there's probably a lot of writers that have much, much less of that experience than you've been able to acquire over the course of your career. Yeah, there are people who are getting up to who have been working for years and who may have been on set once or who may not have been on set at all. Or I have um, a good friend who on her last show, I believe I the last show she worked on, I believe it was her her very first kind of scripted credit, uh, had to fly herself to set because the show wasn't going to send her. Um, Like, it's things like that. I mean, hell, I've flown myself to set before. I, when I I did a show that they did not keep writers on through production, um, and it was one of those things where I was like, I need to have this experience. I need to go. And I didn't stay for the entire time of Mm -hmm. shooting because I could not afford to put myself up in a hotel room that long. Um, But like I went and I went to set and I just kind of met the cast and watched and like learned. And that experience, I, it was dumb that I had to pay to do it myself. And that experience was valuable but it was still like a quarter the value yeah. I got from you know going to set as a staff writer and producing my episode the very first time right and it's like a hardship for you to have to fund that out of your own pocket and yeah. it would be impossible for some other for for lots of people to do or yeah. under yeah um like what why am I why am I using all of my credit card points <laughs> <laughs> on this flight yeah. when I should be saving them up to visit my family at Christmas like it's so yeah um so I mean are, are there other things that you've noticed like over the course of your career that are changes in the industry that have sort of led up to some of the circumstances and we could talk a little bit more about what are some of the well, actually, before we get to that, you said something really interesting starting out that like learning about the Writers Guild was part of for you what made a career in film and television seem like an actual possibility, like knowing that there was a union and that people could have health insurance and collectively bargain, um, which I think is like so wonderful that this like entree, like that that's what collective bargaining does is it can like create you know what it actually can be sustainable careers and you don't need to be somebody who's just independently wealthy and can do this kind of thing on a on a lark um tell me about like your involvement in the wga and like when you started to get involved and what's that meant to you um i got involved pretty early on like me i think my very first like within a month of getting my union card, um, I was going to um, committee meetings. The Writers Guild has all of these um, inclusion and equity com- uh, committees we have. Um, 
the uh, Committee of LGBT Writers, we have the uh, Committee of Black Writers, we have the Committee of Disabled Writers, um, we have a dozen other committees, uh, the Com Career Longevity Car uh, Committee, which is generally for older writers, a dozen mm -hmm. other committees whose names I'm forgetting. I am currently the Vice Chair of the Committee of Women Writers. Um, and so I started to go to all of these meetings and sort of where we talk about, okay, how can we kind of help each other move forward in this industry? Um, what are things that, you know, we, what are things that we're facing that are not being addressed um, by the industry at large, et cetera, et cetera? How do we continue working? <laughs> because that is always a question. Mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I started being um, a so there are show captains and there are strike captains um when you are when we are not in the middle of a giant negotiation um and you're just a human being on a television show there's usually some person somebody who's the point person for um like if you're not getting paid on time which we're never getting paid on time um or the per you're the person who calls the guild and it's like hey we haven't been paid in a couple of weeks could someone figure that out um <laughs> And like all of those other things. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of moved from a very show-based system over the past couple of years into a kind of like broader system where we have mm -hmm. captains for screenwriters who like don't go to offices every day and see people. And so they have people who they can come to for their concerns and all of that. So I've been a captain for a couple of years um, and I'm now a strike captain. So if anyone wants to hang out with me, I'm at Paramount all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the a, time. Yeah, so as a strike captain, like what do you um, organize, like who's showing up to pickets or what are some of the things that you do as a strike captain? Um, so I have a team who I email and like remind like, hey, this is our picket schedule. Um, these are the resources that are available if you're feeling a little bit of a pinch right now um, and like reminding people uh, to come out and pick it and all of that stuff. And then when I am actually at Paramount, my duty is to, or there are other strike captains at other lots throughout the city. Mm -hmm. um, my duty is basically just to, you know, um, make sure that there are people picketing um, whatever gate I'm assigned to that day um make sure no one gets hit by cars <laughs> um very that's a very important part uh -huh. of the job um and just you know kind of keep morale up make sure yeah. people are, it, it's i i call it being i'm a strike summer camp counselor <laughs> um because i just want to keep everybody safe and not get hydrated and not sunburned and right yeah and sunscreen like <laughs> water bottles all the yeah. all the important things and and also you know it's the strike is incredibly like it's it's one of those things where we were having all of these theme packets and they're lovely and it's very very fun and it's a very very mm -hmm. kind of uplifting emotionally engaging experience and it's also very difficult it is both of those things at once right. um and so trying to you know remind people that you know we're we're here for each other mm -hmm. um we we have each other we have each other's back um, and also, I'm going to say the most important part of my job uh, as a captain is remembering to bring my uh, Bluetooth speaker because uh, picketing is easier with jams. It just always yeah. <laughs> making making the picket mixes um, very important stuff. Um, uh, well, that that's fantastic. How involved you've been? Um, can you we we we've talked about this before on the network, but I would like love to just hear your perspective on what are some of like. Well, let's start with this because you know, the strike has been going on since May. We know that um, the first, that in the negotiations, the AMPTP has like not, like, you know, has not, did not come back early on with reasonable responses to the demands of the WGA. Now we'll talk, like, we'll get into a little bit how the SAG-AFTRA strike is um, affecting the state of affairs. But how have negotiations evolved since May? Like, has there been any response? Like, has there been any back and forth? What's your outlook on where things are right now? So the AMPTP has this thing that they love to do where they pretend that they're not capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Um, by which I mean, after our negotiations um, ended and we went on strike, we were like, yo, we're here if you want to come back with a proposal that isn't 
up spit in our faces. And they were like, mm, we're negotiating with the DGA now and we can't do two unisons at once. We just don't have the brain power. Mm-hmm. Um, and then DGA got their deal. Um, and I'm very, very glad that the DGA is happy with that deal mm-hmm. um, for the DGA. Um, and then they were negotiating with SAG and they're like, we're like, we're still here. And they're like, mm, we're negotiating with SAG now. And we just, we we can't. Two unions at once is hard. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure this is exactly what they sound like. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then SAG, now SAG is on strike. Um, mm-hmm. And I am very, very glad that they are standing up for what they deserve. Um, and it's been crickets. We are still, our negotiating committee and our board are still saying, we're here, we are ready. When you are ready to come back to the table with something that isn't just a slap across the face. And the ANPDP is like, that mm, giving you money is hard. <laughs> um, and so that is uh, a, a quick sum. That's a quick summary. So just to like review some of the acronyms for our audience, if you're not as steeped in following the coverage of this, the AMPTP is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Um, the DGA is the Directors Guild. Um, SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. And the WGA is the Writers Guild. And all and the reason that this is sort of all happening is because when contracts come to an end and they need to be renegotiated, both sides need to agree to certain terms. And the WGA, and we could talk a little bit about what some of the overlap between SAG's concerns and the WGA are, because there are some points of complementarity there. Um, they had some concerns about, um, and I don't know the details of this, so Frankie, just please jump in and um, and um, and clarify anything or correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. But there were um, some requirements of that, like that there should be a certain that 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 you would have to have like a writer's staff for a show that you couldn't just like um, that that there was a writer's room there were there there was concerns about these mini rooms where like people are not kind of guaranteed work to be writers on a project but like that um, the AMPTP is hoping to sort of you know farm out bits and pieces of script writing to sort of avoid paying multiple writers to work on a show and once so there were some um, negotiations around that. There were also um, negotiations around, um, there were also requests around residual pay, which is the money that you make when your work is in syndication or on streaming, um, and also some concerns about AI. I, can you just sort of, I mean, that was a really sloppy summary job I did. So if yeah. you want to fill in any of the blanks there. Yeah, sure. Um, so the room size proposal is one of those things where, and this uh, it's like, when you make a television show traditionally there have been writers rooms there are a very small handful of people who do the whole thing themselves but by and large if you want to write eight eight to ten to thirteen to twenty two episodes of a television show it's a lot easier to not do that by yourself um you need part of it is because you just you need different voices and different perspectives to like tell you if you're missing a thing part of it is just because it's a lot of effing work um even and that kind of goes hand in hand with part of uh, with our um move to uh guarantee employment of writers through production because when you are writing for television it isn't just writing at a certain point, if you're writing it and shooting at the same time, that means you have the episode that you are writing, you have the episode that you are shooting, you are in post on the next post production on the next episode, mm-hmm. and then you are prepping the episode that is going to be shot after that. And even if you separate writing from produ- production, even if you write all of the episodes and then you go into production and you shoot all of the episodes, you are still in post-production on one episode while you are shooting another episode, while you are prepping the episode that is yet to be shot. And the episode that you are currently shooting is an evolving thing Um, because this is a collaborative art. There are things that are going to happen on set where you're like, holy shit, that's amazing. No, we're doing that now. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And there are times when you lose locations or, Mm -hmm. you know, something that you thought was going to be a key set piece isn't going to work. And you only have seven days of production. You don't have time to just kind of like add another day on the end to fix this. So you're like, you got to fix it now. Um, And all of those things are they've been putting it on one person. They've been really, really mm. trying to be like, no, one showrunner can do all of that. And cool, if you want that showrunner to have a heart attack at age 42 and be divorced and never see their family, um, cool, beans. Um, mm. But I don't think that's sustainable. Right. And it gets to that issue of like career development too that we were talking about earlier, because like if one person is doing all of this, then you know, you're know you not creating those opportunities for another generation to come in and get those experiences so that they could one day move up and become a showrunner, producer, level person. Exactly. Part of being a showrunner, and I say this as if I'm a showrunner, I am not. Um, but part of the very, very good bosses I've had have been very adamant about this, that part of being a showrunner is mentorship. Like leading, helping the next generation is part of the gig. Mm-hmm. Like that's just the job. And it's about the sustainability of the industry. If you want this industry to continue, if you want television to continue, if you want movies to continue, if you want us to be able to like continue watching really, really fabulous things, you have to create a pipeline where people can learn how to do these jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's especially important, particularly, I'm going to say for women and queer non-binary people and people mm-hmm. of color to have this pipeline because we don't get to fail. We don't get to, mm-hmm. or rather we don't get to fail upwards. I've seen some people just like fuck up and like get another show. And I, pretty damn sure that's not going to happen for me. Um, and so you have to kind of like get, um, teach people these skills if you want them to be able to have careers and it makes for better work. Mm-hmm. It makes for, pe- and it makes for better work, not just in terms of the like art that we're, art that we're creating in terms of the shows that we're creating, but it makes for better work environments mm-hmm. because it teaches you how to treat your crew. It teaches you how to treat your cast. It teaches you how to like go into this space and see all of the different moving parts and to understand those moving parts and to kind of respect the other artists who you're working with, which is a key part of this. Yeah, those are amazing points. I mean, and, you know, think about like, you can't have a diverse writer's room if you don't have a writer's room, right? If you have one person, like how many times are we watching like something and we're like, oh, I wonder if a person that represents this background was in the room because this doesn't sound quite right. And like, if we're in order to involve those voices, you have to have a team of people. Like you can't just be giving these positions to, you know, the most successful people with 30 year track records because not everybody was given the opportunity to have 30 year track records. Exactly. AI is another thing that ha- came up, has come up in the writer's strike and also figures prominently in some of the issues that SAG is dealing with in their negotiations. Um, when we talked to Justin a couple months ago, um, and, you know, and I was like, it was his perspective that, you know, the real, like the, the, the strike is really a kind of about the meat and potatoes of fair pay and like guaranteed, you know, work and these sort of these, these issues, like the, the room size and residual pay um, more that rather than like AI being a little bit of a kind of a flashy distraction, but it seems like the AI issue is like coming more to the fore. Maybe this is just my um, naive outsider um, opinion, or, or maybe it's a little bit of um, the sort of sci-fi zeitgeist of it all getting care that I'm getting carried away with. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of advances in Chat GPT and different um, AI technology, and this idea. One of the things that kind of was particularly dystopian to see play out in the SAG. Um, demands and the lack of response from the AMPTP is like wanting to have, you know, ownership of your own visual likeness and not being able to like, and not allowing a production company to just like use 
your digital image as a background actor without giving you any compensation for it. Um, how do you see the whole AI issue as playing into the current negotiations? Um, so there's a part of me that's just deeply, deeply cynical. And thanks part of the reason AI is being talked about so much right now is because all of the crypto grifters have moved into AI. Um, <laughs> but that's a whole separate conversation. Uh -huh. um, but I think it's very, very um, interesting that it is a thing that in both our, in, in our contracts, they were just like, no, we're not going to talk about it at all. Um, and in SAG's contract, um, I don't have like the list of SAG's mm -hmm. demands and the AMPTP's responses in front of me, but that they were equally, they were very, very dismissive. Oh, and apologies to any SAG leadership or members, uh, membership out here for shortening it. It's now SAG-AFTRA. SAG-AFTRA, because they um, merged uh, yes. with the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists in 2012. I don't want to like act as if I am forgetting that merger or the huge percentage of the membership that came from it. Um, so that said, um, the AI issue with us is really interesting because, and I listened to your um, interview with Justin, and I think it's very, what he said is correct, that the with writers, it is not necessarily a threat that AI can completely come up with something new, can completely come up with something to replace us, but that they can come up with something bad, that they will hire someone on a much, much reduced scale because you're not coming up with a whole idea. This mm. isn't a whole script and story. Beat. I don't mm. know why this is the voice. <laughs> that sounds right. It works. Let's <laughs> yeah. go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that they'll basically hire you on a much reduced sort of rewrite fee to kind of fix this thing right crash and doesn't work um because let's face it a lot of times fixing something bad is as much if not more work than coming up with something good mm. wholesale um and that's you know i can't i'm not on the nego negotiating committee i cannot tell you what our lines in the sand are um but if you are going to basically i i can see what ai and sort of this what AI has done to other industries. If you talk to translators mm -hmm. who are being asked to do something very, very similar, where it's like, I'm going to have to listen to the entire thing from beginning to end and retranslate it because this machine doesn't understand syntax or context or anything. It's just kind of making things right. up. I think with writers, it's a very, very similar thing of AI can't ask why. And that is kind of a fundamental thing when you are writing. Why is this character doing this thing? Right. Why does this thing have to follow from that? Any person who's ever been in, in uh, who's ever pitched to an executive has heard the, well, what's the why now of it all? Why is this story important right now? Mm -hmm. Which I make fun of, but it's a valid and very, very interesting question yeah. that your software is not going to be able to answer. And once you are doing all of that work, you're writing, you're making up something new and you should be paid, you should be compensated for that. Yeah, I think it's such an excellent point that even if the AI doesn't like steal the work, like do the work of writing, it does give, uh, provide a mechanism for undervaluing the work of writing, right? Because it can be like, I have a first draft. It looks like a script. It has all the words in the right place. And that's like a way of undervaluing the work that writers would have to do. And, and as you point out, like oftentimes not even saving any work that would need to be done. Exactly. It's, it's a lot of, you know, it's it's just a it is a way to make it look like what we do is not important and it's a way to get away with paying us less mm -hmm. and i'm not a huge fan of doing the same amount of work if not more for less money i don't know anyone who is <laughs> Um, and I do feel like it's almost like more worrying that the AMTPTP seems like so resistant to even like have a gimme on the AI stuff. It's like, what do they, what do they know? Like they're real. it's like, I wasn't as worried about it until they were like, oh no, 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 we're not going to budge on that. And it makes me like, it, it, it makes it, there's something that's kind of eerie about that stance. 
Yeah, it's, I will, anyone who was actually in the Writers Guild um, for round for 2007, 2008 can correct me on this, shoot me a DM or whatever if I'm wrong, but this feels very similar to when the WGA brought up streaming 15 mm-hmm. years ago and the AMPTP was like, well, we're not going to give you anything on that. That's a new technology. We're definitely not using it, but we're also definitely not going to talk to you about it. Uh-huh. And then Hulu launched, what was it, the day, the week after the strike ended? Uh-huh. Um, so this this feels very similar to that. So it's like, oh, no, you you won't talk about it at, at all? Oh, you're definitely going to try and use that to screw me. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. It does have that kind of eerie feeling around it. Um, speaking of streaming and like residuals, we definitely talked about this quite a bit with Justin when we interviewed him. But um, I'm seeing a lot of the discussion around residuals um, with the SAG-AFTRA strike as well. And I know that there have been a number of um, of, uh, you know, like viral posts or different actors sort of sharing their puny residual checks. And I see like some of the discourse around that is people saying, well, like, aren't the actors really well paid for filming this to begin with? Like, why should they keep on getting these residual checks? Um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like why, why residuals are important and like how the game has changed um, in our current media landscape with regard to residuals. It's, I always get a little bit frustrated when I hear that because I think people are thinking of residuals as continuing to get paid for doing the same job when it is far more similar to the royalties that authors earn or that musicians mm-hmm. earn. And we could have a whole conversation on how musicians have been get, getting screwed in streaming royalties. Um, but that is the separate podcast because um, it's an industry I don't work in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is residuals are in part deferred compensation. It is the agreement is that we get X amount up front. And if the show is successful, if the movie is successful, if whatever we are making is successful, um, then we get a percentage of that success in the future. And what streaming has done is it has kept the kind of, oh, you still only get X amount up front. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to do is not tell you how successful anything is. And we're just going to take that def- the deferred part of your compensation. It's going to be deferred forever. Here, here's a dollar. Here, here's a penny. I worked on a show that um, aired on network and init- then never really reran on network. It basically aired on network and immediately it's all of its reruns were streaming. Um, and I think I got a I got a five dollar residual check from that show this year. Maybe maybe it was seven. Um, you but... should have just had a lemonade stand. Exactly. And it's one of those things where it's like small residual checks have always existed because mm-hmm. I don't know the way it works for SAG-AFTRA, but mm-hmm. for the Writers Guild, you're basically, it's kind of a sort of slope that goes down. Your first residual check is like, fairly large it is 50 percent of what you can be expected to make over the life of the show and their next residual check is smaller and the checks get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as you go on so somebody who wrote on cheers might still be getting like a penny residual check if it's air if it's still airing Mm -hmm. but like or because cheers still airs on reruns on tv land or whatnot but like that's because you worked on it 30 years ago Mm -hmm. the idea that you're getting these Easy residual checks for something that you worked on two years ago. That's a very, very new thing. Right. And like I said, it's not that we're expecting just like huge buku checks forever and ever. But if you worked on a thing that is making the company you made it for millions and sometimes billions of dollars, and you originated a part of that, you wrote that episode your performance in it is key to its success it is cuckoo that you that you're not getting to share in that 
Right. Like somebody's making a fortune over like that work because it's so popular and beloved. Like, shouldn't the creators have a stake in that? Like not yeah. all of it, but a stake in it. Yeah. Right. Because somebody is raking it in because of the success of these properties. Yeah. And exactly. And that is what part of what the studios are doing is being like, well, we created the distribution platform or we gave, we um, fronted the money to make this thing. So all of the profits are ours, all of them. They're all ours and we keep them forever and you get nothing. And it's like, no, we get, and we're not even asking for that fucking much. Right. That's what drives me crazy. The entirety of the Writers Guild's demands make up, I think, less than 2% of studio profits over the course of the three years that the contract would last. We're asking for so little and everyone's going, nope, sorry, all I our mean, money, none of yours. And they're losing money halting production, which like shows just how threat, like how threatened they are by giving away anything at all. I mean, it's the fact that it's worth it to them to undervalue labor in this way like shows that it's like it's a long game it's a long game of just undervaluing that work and not paying the creators yeah they have been they're trying to break the unions that is fundamentally what they are trying to do because this strike is costing them quite quite possibly billions of dollars i know it is costing the economy of the city of los angeles mm -hmm. billions of dollars in terms of all of the work that is being lost not just for the studios, but for all of the crew members who aren't working, for all of the catering companies who aren't working, for mm -hmm. all of the people. And to the studios, it is worth that if they can make sure that they never have to make another union minimum payment again. And that is what they are trying to do. And let me be clear, they are going to fail miserably because the Writers Guild is not a union that can be broken. And I do not think sag after right now is a union that can be broken, um, but they're trying. And they are going to lose and it is going to cost them billions more dollars and it may cost some of these CEOs their job, but they're going to try. Yeah, so this, fail. this is a quote that got a lot of traction from the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers that um, they plan. So this was, I, I think, an unattributed quote. We plan to let the Writers Guild bleed out before resuming negotiations. The end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Yeah. That was the quote that made me want to know how much a flamethrower costs. <laughs> um. I think, yeah. Yeah, you could um, you could maybe team up with um, oh, what's his name? Why Ron Perlman. What's that? Yeah, Rod Perlman. Exactly. I think he's yeah. leading. He's leading a mob with flamethrowers as we speak. Um, but I, yeah, I, I want to take that with a grain of salt because there is a or or a shaker of salt possibly because there is a part of me that thinks that that was a quote intended to scare us mm -hmm. um and then there's a part of me that thinks that these people just don't actually see us as human beings uh with any value um and would be happy to uh, to see us lose our homes um but yeah they're going to like i said they they would like to see the union broken they would like to not have to value us because a lot of these people, and I think it's become more and more um, of an issue as sort of pe people from the tech space have moved into Hollywood, pe these people and people whose jobs have been primarily in kind of the world of corporate mergers and not mm -hmm. in the world of entertainment, it is their job to look at quote unquote inefficiencies. Right. And those inefficiencies are human labor costs. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, they don't see that the human labor cost is essential to the integrity and to the quality of the final product. And if they do see it, they don't care because their job is not the product. Their job is to make the number on the earnings report keep going up and up and up and up and up. And you make profits go up by making costs go down. 
And that is the only thing they care about. They do not care about whether or not this industry survives those couple of quarters of really, really shiny profits. And then, oh, wait, there's no one making our profits anymore because everyone left the industry to go do something where they can make actual money um, and buy houses. And so that is what we're up against. And like I said, we're going to win um, because you can only hold out for so many qu- uh, quarters before your investors start going, wait a second, but you're not making anything. And you can only lose so many billions of dollars holding out for such a tiny fraction of what has been lost before it stops making sense and you have to come to the table. And I don't know when that's going to happen. And I think anyone who says that they do know when that's going to happen um, is speculating wildly or a lying liar who lies. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. well, the, TL, the TLDR version is that they do not care about us. They care yeah. about how do we make the most amount of money while paying people the least amount of money? Um, and we are not going to stand for that. Netflix just lost 18 billion in value. Um, so, I mean, like there's, there's, there's signs that, you know, that they're not as, I know that a lot of these streamers and a lot of these networks are um, clinging to this idea that they have these strike proof plans with content on the shelf, or I mean, looking at, these network schedules that are, you know, heavily reality TV and reruns. And um, there's, there, it's possible that this, that this bubble might burst, and they might not actually have the strength that they're uh, posturing to have. I, I think that's very true. I think strike proof schedules are a joke, um, in part, large part, because a lot of things that had start anything that had not completed production by the time the strike started, like once your writers walked off set, it is possible, which, and I very much, I, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because I don't want to appear to be applauding loss of work. I am very mm. cognizant of mm-hmm. all of the, members of other unions and all of the non-union workers who also lost their jobs when we went on strike and when people chose to not continue shooting their uh shooting their shows but a lot of showrunners walked off set and because it was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. um and i am very very grateful for their for to them for doing that and anything that like showrunners weren't that you didn't have writers on set for anything that you don't have writers and post-production on how arable is that really mm-hmm. like how how good is that episode of television are you just going to put something that you know is half finished out there just to have something out there to like to to what to what end to drag this on a little longer i just I mean, they're going to do it because they're dumb. Um, <laughs> but I I personally don't, and not a member of leadership, I'm just a, just a schmuck. Um, but I personally don't see their strike-proof fall schedules being very strike-proof at all. Um, how does SAG-AFTRA uh, striking change the game, if at all? Um, it's interesting. It, it it both does and doesn't. Um, I there have been a lot of actors who have been out there on the picket lines with us since day one. There is um, someone who is now a SAG captain um, who I've been seeing on the picket lines since the very first week. Um, we are very very grateful for just kind of the influx of bodies and energies, and it is absolutely lovely to see more people on the line. Um, and to see more people who the press cares about on the line, because nobody mm. wants them to be a writer. <laughs> um, but, but the writers make the best picket signs. We do. We, do. we, are, <laughs> we are quite good at that. Um, but it's also, it's one of those things where I want SAG to get every damn thing they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very, very hopeful for them, and I want them to get the best damn contract 
um, their contract is also not our contract. So we mm-hmm. have, there were things that overlap in terms of like AI proposals and there were and AI proposals and initial compensation and residuals. Um, and there were things that, although I think their residuals proposal might be different. I don't, once again, I don't have their demands in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things that don't overlap. There are things that are very, very um, like unique to each union. Um, and so it is wonderful in terms of just a kind of labor moment mm-hmm. where the more workers across all industries who stand up and say no you can't actually keep taking advantage of us you can't keep grinding us down further and further and further into the dirt just so you ceo schmuck who does not mm-hmm. make anything other than money does not make a decision does not make a pro or doesn't make anything other than decisions and mm-hmm. money does not make a product does not make a creative choice doesn't make anything you want more money while we get less? Absolutely the fuck not. Mm-hmm. The more people across all industries that do that, I think the better it is going to be for workers and for America as a whole. And so on that front, hell fucking yes. Um, but like on a super duper like wonky nuancy thing, um, like they're going to be two separate contracts. And so yeah. it's, I'm, that said, so happy to see SAG out there. I am so happy because I think it's so common for people to try and grind actors down and the kind of, you're lucky just to be having a job that people do to writers, they do to actors 10 times over. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I am so incredibly happy to see them fighting for what they are worth. Um, Yeah, it's, it's great. And it's like, it's, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, um, this is the first time that both unions have been on strike since, is it 1960? Yes. Um, which is incredible. Back when Ronald Reagan was the president of, of SAG and not the president of the United States, the president of SAG, uh, labor hero, Ronald Reagan. Went from, went from being president of a union mm. to breaking a union and or destroying right. American labor for a generation. <laughs> um so that's a that's an interesting career trajectory right there but um no it's i think it's it's great to give this kind of visibility to organize labor and i'm really sensitive to the point that you made Frankie, about like being mindful that, you know, stopping work is affecting the livelihoods of lots of different people, um, of lots of different industries that support TV and film. And like being somebody who's talked to teachers who have been on strike and nurses who have been on strike, like striking workers want to go to work. Like they want to work. It's if you're angry that work is stopped, then look at the producers and look at the bosses who are not, you know, coming in good faith, trying to make these negotiations and valuing labor because that's what's stopping work. And sometimes the only way to counteract that is to strike. I'm just going to say just exactly. I, I love my job. I moved across the country, put myself into a significant amount of student debt to do the things that I do for a living. And I love it. I don't want to do anything other than write for a living. And the studios are trying to make that impossible for me. And so Mm -hmm. I am stopping work to be able to continue working. That is the whole point of a strike. And I, yeah, if you, as, as you said, if you have a problem with it, take it up with the AMPTP (laughs) because our, our leadership is, very, very visible. They're out there on the picket lines every day. They are they are findable human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to anyone who's complaining about the SAG strike, SAG's negotiating committee, I'm sure, is ready to go. It's ready to talk when the AMPTP has something reasonable to say. Um, Frankie, how is morale holding up amongst the WGA and like going like now into, you know, we're over two months into the strike here. Like, I'm sure that there's people who need support for their families financially. Like, are there things that fans can do that want to support the strike and want to support WGA to continue doing what they're doing and fighting this fight? 
So glad you asked. Um, there is uh, the Entertainment Community Fund. It used to be called the Actors Fund. I believe they renamed themselves about a year or two ago. Um, and the Entertainment Community Fund um, provides financial uh, aid to pretty much anyone in the industry. So actors, writers, uh, crew members, uh, anyone who they have a fund specifically for anyone who has been affected by the strike. And so people can make donations to that fund, which is like super duper helpful. Um, and I'll look that up and provide that detail in the show notes so that listeners can um, find that and donate if they're so inclined. Yes. Um, and then the Humanitas organization uh, has a writer specific um groceries for writers um, that you can give them money and they will give writers like grocery gift cards that they can use to continue to feed themselves. <laughs> um, and anyone who lives in LA, come out, grab a picket sign. Come enjoy the pickets. I bet the, so is it, is it, is it fun? You got good tunes. There is like people yeah. showing up. Yeah. Good, good tunes, good energy. Um, morale has honestly been pretty high. Um, I think the person who said that they're waiting for us to lose our homes, um, it backfired in a big way. Um, because that kind of made people all the more determined to like come out um, and show that we will not be broken. Um, and so it's, like I said, it's not it, it's it's not one of those things where we're not going nanny nanny boo boo you we are not working um but it very much is a kind of we are glad to be out there fighting for what we're worth um and we you know are going to be out there every day for as long as we have to and we're feeling very very confident and very very good about it well, that's amazing um it's 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 great to hear that you have that energy and that you have that support we'll definitely provide the links to these um these funds so that our listeners can help contribute and help you fight the fight and really like the these uh the amptp could not be like better cartoon villains like i feel like they keep on bob Iger and like everything that comes out of like you know david zaslov like everything that i hear from them it's just like they're so clearly the bad guys if I wrote it in a script, I would get the note that they're being too arch and can you make them a little less mustache twirly? It is ridiculous. It's a lot. Maybe AI wrote it. Maybe that's why it's no Oh my good. god, if, if, if AI wrote the strike, it's actually the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> Um, is there anything else, Frankie, that you wanted to make sure that our listeners know about? Anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, no, just that um, I'm going to say any listener who um, is in a workplace that you think is shit um, and could be made better by organizing, um, the unions are great. Um, <laughs> why I have health insurance. <laughs> um, so just kind of, I know a lot of times standing up for what you deserve can be scary. Uh, and I don't want to pretend that it's not, um, but it's worth it. Um, and I, and I know that it comes with risks, um, but I, but if you have the option to organize and to or if you do have a union um that you aren't super involved in get involved with it it's very very kind of it's an it's an incredibly gratifying thing to be a part of um to be able to sort of take control of your own career destiny in that kind of way um that sounded very hustle culture i apologize <laughs> um but you know yeah union unions are great that's and this is a really really fucking amazing moment for American labor. Um, and there are also a bunch of hotel strikes uh, going on across LA right now for anyone who lives uh, in LA. Or if you're visiting LA, just make sure that you're, the hotel you're staying in isn't one of the ones being mm. struck. It's not cross picket lines. Um, yeah, that's a lot to say. Labor, yeah. labor, labor good is what I just rambled on for the last 30 seconds. Labor good. Um, <laughs> no, we are in a moment where we're seeing like after a long languishing uh, labor period in our U.S. history that there is 
finally an increase in organized labor, um, which is really, really sorely needed um, as, you know, there's lots of folks that, you know, it's, it's interesting, like we cover a lot of shows on post-show recaps, like, um, you know, Severance, which is all about how jobs suck, um, you know, party down. We talked about how that has like a labor component as well. People are really- I'd be, like, be Adam Scott, shitty job cinematic universe. I know, he is the <laughs> avatar for the downtrodden working man. Um, no, but I think it's, 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 you know, it's at a breaking point where when we talked about this with Justin, like, it's, um, you know, a lot of this is entertainment specific, but, you know, people are losing, continuing to lose jobs to automation and AI. Um, people are losing, you know, benefits and wages are stagnant and we're facing inflation. Like a lot of these concerns are just um, general labor concerns that are not necessarily only specific to the entertainment industry. We have an impending um, UPS strike as well right now. Um, mentioned like healthcare strikes and uh, education strikes. So, um, you know, this is like a moment, this is an effective tool that uh, workers have for making sure that they get a fair deal. Because as Frankie said, the people who are just looking at earnings reports are, are inclined to not see you as human beings who have actual material needs. And the only way to make them see that is to bargain collectively. So it's been really, really, really great, Frankie, to have you on um, and talk all about your experience and give us some background on what currently is going on with the strike. Um, where can our listeners keep up with you if they're interested in following what you're doing? Um, <laughs> I, I, before now, I would have said Twitter. Uh, oh, I'm mm. sorry. X, X. <laughs> is how they're rebranding to mm. the mm-hmm. um, So uh, I'm still, for now, um, findable on Twitter as Frankie the Bee. Um, I am the same thing there on Instagram. Um, both of those things are going to be literally nothing but strike talk for the until the end of the strike. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so that is that is until the social media ecosystem collapses into the ocean, <laughs> um, where I am for for the time being. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank. Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to plug anything that I'm up to. I'm also on X though, where you can find me at DR Amanda R. Thanks again so much for joining us. Frankie.